One month ago, I, I, uh, I preached on faith and extraordinary works, and this is sort of a um, part two, and there's really actually many parts, because there's a question that has been gnawing at me for some time, and uh, interestingly, it was a question that was brought up to me by one of the marketplace leaders this past Wednesday, right after our, uh, our, after our session there. And he stayed back, and we were just talking about a lot of things, and all at once out of nowhere, he asked the question. He said, do you think we'll ever see some really great works, miraculous type of works here at Southland? And it, uh, it actually bugged me that he asked the question. <laughs> it bugged me because it's the same question that's been gnawing at me. Because I look in the New Testament, and I see phenomenal, miraculous kinds of works that had huge impact on an unbelieving and a pagan society around them. And I'm thinking, boy, <laughs> are we going to see something in our day here as well? Now, don't, mis uh, don't misunderstand me. It's not that God isn't doing great things uh, here at Southland um, already. He is. If you, if you were here 16 years ago and you see what Southland is like today, and the things that we're doing today compared to what we were doing 16 years ago, God has done amazing things. It's just absolutely incredible. And we should never negate that or forget that and pretend that that doesn't count. It counts big time. And I believe it's a progression in where God wants to take us as a church. But the question remains, <laughs> is there another level? And how, do we, how are we going to get there? What's keeping us from getting there? And I think there's actually a number of answers to that question. I'm going to only be able to look at two. There's actually two other ones that I put aside. In fact, I started with them for this weekend, and yesterday morning I changed the message entirely and went to two completely different ones. So um, uh, that's what we're going to do. So let's back up now and, uh, and see what, what happened. Here's what happened. God created the heavens and the earth, and they belonged to him, Psalm 24 says. He delegated authority, the authority of ruling the earth to mankind. However, Adam submitted to the devil. And when he listened to the devil's reasoning and then obeyed, uh, the devil supplanted man's authority. That's how, that's how man gave it away. He submitted to the devil. The <laughs> devil said, this is what you ought to do. And man said, a good idea. And uh, when speaking to Jesus, we, and we know that some of this authority shifted because man had been given in Genesis chapter 1, had been given dominion over the, uh, over the things on this uh, particular planet. Of course, God is sovereign over all, but man had been given some delegated authority, and uh, Satan wrested some of that away. So, uh, and we can see it clearly in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, it says, To you I will give all this authority and their, and their glory. This is when, G, uh, when the devil was tempting Jesus in the, in the wilderness. Jesus was a God-man, right? And uh, the devil knew that he had come to take, try to wrest his authority back. So he tries to tempt the second Adam the same way that he uh, tempted the first one. And uh, he says, for it has been delivered to me, this authority. And I give it to whom I will. And in John 12, of course, the devil, uh, the devil ref is referred to as the ruler of this world. But make no mistake about this. We're not talking here about the devil having stolen God's authority. No. No, we're not talking about that at all. We're not talking about God's sovereignty here and, and everything that Chris talked about here before. We're talking about something underneath that God delegated to mankind and the devil went and, and grabbed it and put himself above mankind and that's what we're talking about. The delegated amount of responsibility that was given to man. And the, and the devil knew that Jesus had come to take that authority back and give it to man. That's why Paul says... Uh, that were seated in the heavenlies above all these powers and principalities of the air. But he's not talking about we're, that the devil is seated above God. Amen? Is, are we clear on that? Had a question about that last night. In fact, two. So he tried to trick the second Adam, Jesus, into submitting to him, just like he had the first Adam, but he wasn't successful. <laughs> Didn't work. Jesus had come with a purpose to destroy the devil's grip on mankind, and he did just that. It says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 
He did it by his works throughout his three-year ministry. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the what? All who were oppressed by the what? You're going to have to help me all morning. All who were oppressed by the devil. Very good. For God was with him. But he drove the final nail in the coffin, that is, Jesus did, for the devil, when he made it all the way to the cross. It says, and Paul says in Colossians, he says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now make no mistake about it, the devil wanted to kill Jesus. That's why he tried to kill him when he was a baby, right? But the devil did not want Jesus to make it to the cross where he would make an eternal sacrifice for all the sins of mankind. That he did not want, and he tried to dissuade him from that. He wanted to give him alternate rule, uh, alternate routes to, uh, to doing this. And of course, Jesus wouldn't be dissuaded, and so because he made it to the cross, he was able to disarm the powers and the principalities and, take, and wrest the authority that the devil had over m- mankind and give it back put it back in mankind's hands. Aren't you glad? It's really important that we understand this, this story, for what what we're going to talk about. So this sacrifice would make it possible for men and women to escape the chains and bondages of sin, be set free, empower them for dominion again, and give them back the eternal life they had in the beginning all along. (laughs) Oh, I love that. It's a great story, isn't it? It's the grandest story of all time. And once Jesus won this victory, he handed the the once lost authority back to mankind. Look what he says in uh, what it says in Luke chapter ten. The seventy-two returned with joy. They're excited, saying, "Lord, even the demons are subject to us in our in your name." It's like they found out. They figured it out. (laughs) We're, We're getting us back. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So we've been given authority. Now we're to destroy the works of the devil. Amen? Amen. (laughs) We're to do it. We're to finish the work Jesus started. It's back in our hands. So if we've been given authority over the devil... Why doesn't it look that way in most churches and Christians living in the West and in the first world countries? And it doesn't. It does not look that way. Why is that so? Somehow we've limited God. For example, in the Old Testament, and and we can limit God. Did you know that? Elisha, God has set certain parameters up within himself. He's set certain boundaries that he won't violate. He's sovereign. He can do that if he wants, right? So he sets certain boundaries. And, uh, and we can limit God in what he does through us. In the Old Testament, for example, Elisha told the king of Israel to strike the ground with arrows to signify the Lord's deliverance from Syria. Look what happens in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 18. It says, and he struck three times and stopped. It's very significant. And stopped. Well, Elisha was furious and confronted the king. This is what he said. You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. God wanted Israel to destroy Syria, but his desire wasn't accomplished because a man limited him. So how can... Or how do we limit God? How are we in the West limiting God? I think there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's two ways that I, I want to address this morning. Though I think there's, uh, I know there's other, way, there's other ways. First of all, we don't access his grace. Churches and Christians are not to rely on their own ability to set people free from works and bondages of the devil. Would you agree? Just because he gave... Us the authority to do so doesn't mean that we have the human ability to do it. Would you agree with that? <laughs> the devil's actually very strong. Did you know that? He's weak compared to God. Completely weak compared to God. But he's strong compared to you and I in the natural realm. And not only that, he's got a lot of experience. Thousands of years. 
Millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years. He's got lots of experience in what he does. You and I don't have a whole lot of experience. Would you agree with that? But we've, so we've been given God's grace for dealing with that. And here's where there's so much misunderstanding. It's true that grace is for salvation. And Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the what? Gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, what is not of our doing? According to this passage, according to the passage you see here, what is not of our own doing? Ah, very good. Salvation is not of our own doing. What is not the result of our own works, according to this passage? Go ahead, say it. You're right. Salvation, right? What is the gift of God, according to this passage? Salvation again. Three right answers. Very good. You're going to win my washer and dryer. (laughs) What is it that saved us? God's grace saved us. God's grace saved us. Do Do you see that? So what did we not earn? And what did we get from God? And how did we get it? By grace. And how did we access the grace? Through faith. Simply by believing Him. True? Many have defined grace as God's unmerited favor. And that is a problem. Many have defined grace as God's unmerited favor. I've heard that many, many, many times. I probably have used it. Have any of you heard that before? That doesn't mean you've used it because you wouldn't. But... Have you heard it? Yeah, unmerited favor. That is not what grace is. That is not what grace is. According to this passage, we can't earn grace and we don't deserve it. That's true, but that's not what grace is. For example, if, an, if I have an employee, and this church has an employee who performs very poorly, and we have none like that. Okay? We have none, none like that. Just in case there's any sitting here. I don't want them to be worried. But at the end of the year, I decide, uh, you know, this employee who performs really poorly, I decide at the end of the year, I'm going to give this employee a two-week, all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii with their spouse. Sounds like a good deal, right? Now, I want to ask you the question, was it unmerited? Go ahead, uh, just just say it out loud, yeah, like you would to Alex. Is it unmerited? Yes. Yes, it's absolutely unmerited. I mean, and is it my favor that they didn't deserve? Yes, absolutely it is. I mean, they pack their bags and they head off to the airport with the plane tickets in hand, and when they get to the check-in, does the ticket agent look at the ticket and say, I'm sorry, you can't board the plane because this plane ticket means unmerited favor? Yes or no? No. What does a plane ticket mean? A plane ticket. And what, does, and what does a two-week, all-expense, paid trip to Hawaii mean? Is it unmerited? Is it my favor? Yes. But is that what it means? No, it's not what it means. It means a two-week, all-expense, paid trip to Hawaii. Amen? That's pretty straightforward. That's the same problem we have with grace. A lot of people have simply... Turn grace into something that it's unmerited favor. Well, of course it's unmerited, and it is the favor of God. That's how you get it. We didn't deserve it, but that's not what grace is. <laughs> Does that make sense? So what is grace? Well, 2 Timothy 1 says, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it, grace, has now been revealed. How? Take a look at the second part of verse 10. Through the appearing of our Lord, uh, of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, one aspect of this grace clearly is power or ability. And in this particular case, It's talking about the power of Christ used to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. Wow. Now we're starting to get somewhere. 
For by grace, oh, this power, something that is inherent in God, that's how we got saved. It took something incredible to save us. Would you agree with that? Yes. And this power or grace or resources, they dwell there in Christ. It's the power of Christ. And where does the Spirit of Christ dwell? Well, he lives in us according to Galatians, right? He lives in us. That means that all his power, all his resources, all his wisdom, all his glorious riches, which are all part of his grace, everything that we need in Christ is found in Christ who dwells in us. Is that amazing? It's just absolutely astounding. It's not just unmerited favor. It is unmerited. We don't deserve all that, those resources and glorious riches and power and wisdom and might and all of those things. We don't deserve it. And it's the favor of God on us that we got it, but that's not what it is. It's amazing what resides in us. It's just incredible. It's all at our disposal. Everything that Jesus Christ could do and did do resides in him. Would you agree? And that living Christ lives in you. Amen? Oh, glory to God. Amen? That is in you. That is in me. That's what grace is. Oh, my goodness. Can you believe it? Think of the potential. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. <clears throat> he went around doing good, destroying and, and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. He was anointed by the Spirit. And that same Jesus Christ dwells in you. With all the potential, all those resources, every last one of them in you. <sighs> wow. That means we should be able to do incredible works. But we've come to believe from a lie that the devil planted in us that it, all it is is unmerited favor. And do you know what that means? It actually means what we're really saying is the grand sin cover-up. That's all it means. I sin and it's all just covered up. That's God's favor and merit. That's what grace is. No, no, no. Thousand times more. No. That's not what it means. And because we've bought into that, we don't realize what is in us, what is available to us, and why God wanted, why Jesus left. Why would Jesus leave, do all those good things for three years and leave a needy world behind? So only three years of people who could walk around him are the only ones who can get blessed by God? Is that it? No. He turns around and gives it to his disciples and says, now you go do it. And now he says to you, now you do it. And he says to me, you do it. Would you agree with that, church? <laughs> See? But we've missed it. We've been so caught up on the, on the grand sin cover-up. That's what we think it means. And it doesn't. Wow. In uh, John chapter 1 verse, and that's exactly what the apostle John meant too. In John 1 he says, and from his fullness, filling what? What does he fill? His fullness. What does he fill? Us. Say us. Turn to someone next to you and say he fills us. Huh. His fullness. But look what it says. And from his fullness we have all received what? Grace upon grace. He said, well, what does that mean, grace upon grace? Superabundant grace. More than you can ever imagine. More than you can comprehend. More than you can think or imagine or ever need. You can never exhaust it. It's all there. It's all there. Wow. <sighs> So when you got saved, it was God's grace and power and resources that saved you. God rescued you from the enslavement to the power of sin and the clutches of the enemy, just like he did when he freed the children of Israel. In Acts 13, it says, the God of the people of Israel with what? With what? Mighty power. 
he led them out of the country of Egypt. Notice it took mighty power to free them. And let me say this to you, it took mighty power to save you too. God didn't just come and just say, you're forgiven. It took mighty power. The same power that delivered the Israelites, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, same power to save you. The gospel, it says, in the Greek it says, is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite from. It's powerful, amen? Yeah, has great power and ability to set everyone free. That's incredible. That's what it means for by grace you have been saved. We should be going around and shouting hallelujah, not just because there's a cover-up, but because with great might and with everything at God's disposal, he saved you and me. And he overcame and disarmed the powers and principalities of the air at the cross. Wow. It took mighty deliverance power to do that. And that same power that delivered the Israelites uh, and raised Jesus from the dead, that's the power. The person of Christ, his accompanying power and his resources, all of them dwells in you. And this is so important. Now Romans 6.14 makes sense. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under... Ha! You'll never read that passage the same again. Scribble out what you ever thought in there. And scribble in your Bible. Does not mean unmerited favor. It is unmerited favor. But that's not what it means. It means that now sin doesn't have to be your master because you have all of God's power and resources at your disposal. You're not under the law. That didn't have any power in it and resources. Amen? Oh, God is good. He's given us so much. Amen? Wow. So grace is the power of Christ and his resources residing in you that can free you from the dominion of sin. You know, I've seen bumper stickers, and I've heard people use this phrase. I'm just a forgiven sinner. I hate that phrase. And if you see it on a bumper, rip the bumper off. <laughs> if you, can't, you know, you can't get those stickers off, so rip the bumper off. No, no, a thousand times no. You're not just a forgiven sinner. This isn't just an unmerited favor. God's power has saved you, and he, it's available to you to set you free and on a new course because it resides in you. But so many Christians don't access that grace that is right there. Some do, many don't. And certainly in the Canadian church, I'm appalled at how few know about this. How few know about this. It's a lie of the devil that I'm just a forgiven sinner. Don't believe it and don't repeat it. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. <clears throat> God's grace empowers us to live a life that is pleasing to God. And that's why God says, be holy for I am holy. That's why Paul warned, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. <clears throat> now what I'm teaching you right now is absolutely foundational. We're talking about going, doing great works that set many people free from the kingdom of darkness to live in the kingdom of light. I mean, it's going to take great works to take on the devil, don't you think? <laughs> it's going to take a lot of power to do it. And do you know what? That power is residing in you. But if you haven't learned how to access it for yourself, you will never learn how to access it for, the, for going against the devil and for anybody else. Does that make sense? Do you see the problem? And so the whole, when I ask the Holy Spirit, what is the problem? He says, they're not accessing it. And when I say they, I don't mean all of you. You are, but those other three services aren't. Right? That's what I told them too. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I did not say that to them. <laughs> Paul said in Ephesians 5, he said, 
Live as children of light. Why? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Suppose I'm a prisoner living in a small cell at Headingley Jail. One day I'm standing against the bars, speaking to a fellow prisoner across the way. I can't touch him, I can't reach him. He's across the, across the way. But I'm talking through my bars to him. And I say to him, I can spring you free from your gray, uh, dark gray drab prison cell and you can live in one like mine because it's yellow. Do you really think that he's interested in a grand escape from his cell just so you, he can be in your yellow one? He'll think you're nuts. Would you agree? Because he's still a what? He's still a prisoner and he's looking at you and saying, you're a prisoner, don't you get it? You're no different than I am. Well, you can see where this is going, can't you? Why would he want your cell just because of it's just a different shade of gray or color? And that's my point. Why would your son or daughter, your friend or colleague, want what you have if, and what I have if we are still in bondage? We act just like them. We can't be set free of anything. We lie just like they. We still cheat and we cuss and we, and we carry on. And, and we're just no different. But I'm forgiven. <laughs> oh, you're yellow. And I go to church. And the colors are pretty. I go to church. Whoopee. Why does he want to go to church? Because it doesn't change anything anyway. Amen. Why would he want to? That's why we're not seeing it. But there's the other side of the coin. That it's not just about optics. If you haven't learned how to set yourself free by using grace made available to you, you will, uh, how will you know how to access it for anyone else? There's a, there a pastor, I won't mention his name, but who believes exactly what I do, and he's in another country. But he had a, a couple call him up and say, and he phoned, they phoned him up and said, Pastor, would you come and bless our divorce? He said, what? Yeah, would you come? We, we need your blessing on it. And we want you to pray over us as we divorce. He said, I'll be right over. So he drove over to this couple, and they had already separated everything out and decided how they were going to do all, all this kind of stuff. And he said, this is just absolutely insane. Insanity. We're believers. He went and he said, Come over here, both of you. He grabbed his hand and he grabbed her hand and he put them together like this and he held on to them. And then he said, in Jesus' name, take authority over the demons uh, that are destroying this marriage and I bind you and I break your, your, your strongholds and your assignments in this, in this marriage. And I tell you to go to the place Jesus sends you and I tell you to stop doing this. And he broke the bondage, bondages, and he, and he drove the demonic spirits away. And you know what happened? As he was doing it, they broke down and started to weep. Both of them, right in front of him. And after they were finished crying, they said they started working on reconciliation while he left. And a few weeks later, they said, Pastor, would you come and do a rededication of our marriage? Now, you know why I tell that story? Because some people think, that's oh, just dumb, demonic spirits and all that stuff. No, that's access. That's recognizing that we have to destroy the works of the devil, and it's recognizing that there's grace that we can access, and we know, and, and we've learned how to do it, so we then go and use it and, and destroy the works of the devil. See that? What if we had, we have, you know depending on what season of the year, but we have 3,500 people attending here. What if we had 3,500 people attending who all knew how to access all aspects of God's grace in their lives? What do you think would happen in this area? It'd be absolutely stunning. Well, we wouldn't have Wednesday night and Thursday night anymore. Right now we have, you know, those personal ministry times. People can come because there's a few people that do it. No. 
No. Everybody would be doing it. It would be stunning. That's what happened in the New Testament church. They knew how to access God's grace. Um, there's a cell in our church that uh, I, I heard about just re- uh, recently. And a lot of young couples in there. And all of them had problems becoming pregnant. All of them. They just couldn't do it. And uh, so the wise cell leaders, older than them, uh, brought them together, one at a time, sat them on a chair in the middle, and started pr- laid their hands on them as a cell, started praying over them. Every last couple got pregnant. Huh? Is that amazing? You know what that is? That's believing that what God says is true, learning how to do it, and it's not difficult, accessing God's grace and then doing it. Amen? That, you know what? That's why we have encounters. That's why we have empowers. That's why we have hearing God seminars. That's why we have prophetic seminars, prayer seminars. You name it, we have. And they're not just teaching. They're training times. That's what we have it for. So that people can learn how to access that, that, uh, that grace. And... Um, it's, it's really important. So we train people in deliverance and inner healing and breaking generational sins and soul ties and pers- personal bondages and using the prophetic and healing and hearing God, spiritual languages, filling the spirit, and on and on and on. Wow. That's amazing. And the, you, know, you know why this is so important? The Lord has really put it on my heart over the years. This is not about a one-man show. You know, I don't get up here and see, oh, there's some people there that need healing. Right there in the third row in the back. Right you, yes. Right you there, sir. (laughs) And then I do it, and you all come and give me money and worship me. No. The body should be trained. And so God has given me ideas about systems that we could set up where we can train many, but people have to be willing to be trained. And then avail themselves of the grace that's there. It's very important, right? This fall, I was talking to Ray about it just a few minutes before he came on stage, just so he wouldn't be shocked. This fall, I'm going to ask cells um, to, to go to a new level and start asking every week, what are the needs and what are the struggles in your personal lives? And then I want those cells taking care of those needs. Not sending them over here for personal ministry, doing it right there. You say, but what if we don't know how? Then we'll show you how. Amen? Because if you start learning how to do it in your own personal lives and in the life of yourself, think about what God's next step is. And I'm, and I'm making training materials right now for an evangelism course. And it's going to include these aspects because we're going to start doing it with non-believers. And when God does amazing things with non-believers, what do you think is going to happen? Oh, do you think they might just get saved? Yeah, because they're going to see the power of God in their life. That's what Jesus did. Amen? People are all about friendship evangelism. I'm telling you, this is what Jesus did. That's how he was a friend to sinners. Not just being sweet and nice to them, bringing them (laughs) Kool-Aid. But demonstrating God in their lives. And that's why it's so important that we do this. All right? Many don't think they need this, so their marriages and families continue to suffer, not to mention a lost world around Paul listed a number of things that the last days would be characterized by. Look what the, what the final one was. He listed all kinds of things, and then it says, having a form of godliness but denying its power. If that doesn't describe the Canadian church, I don't know what does. That's sad. We've got such a birthright. Amen? We do. There's an American religious identity survey done in 1990 and also in 2008. These surveys found that the big soft middle of the worldwide church is imploding, or particularly in North America. It's imploding. They've never done surveys this big before. I mean, they're using samplings of 130,000. <laughs> Nobody does surveys like that. And what they discovered, there's two polls that are growing. There's, one is the nons, 
And they've discovered there are 16% of the American population now, it's doubled since 1990, 16% uh, of the population now identifies itself as not identified with any religion of any kind. It has nothing to do with God, zippo, zero. The entire large middle is beginning to implode, and then on this opposite end of the spectrum is what Dr. James Emery White, former president of Wheaton College and a, and a pastor of a massive church that's really growing, just a brilliant man endorsed by Billy Graham. Uh, and he writes, uh, on the opposite pole, only the fire-in-your-belly churches with conviction, passion, and who see life change are growing. And they represent 16% of the population now, too. You know what? I'm glad. I'm glad that finally it's going to be clear. You don't believe, you believe. And he said, they're starting to look like New Testament churches. They're starting to look like that. That's where we've got to go. All right, uh, here's the, the last point, because we're running out of time, so I'm going to skim, and, and guys, don't worry about the PowerPoint on this one. Um, I made some very fast changes here at the last second. <laughs> I did it just before I came up. We, number two, we don't grow in our faith. We don't access grace, and we don't grow in our faith. We don't develop our faith. There's a story about, uh, about, um, about Abraham uh, that's, uh, uh, that's amazing. When God promised Abram that he would become the father of nations, Abram dared to trust God. He didn't focus on his impotence and say it's hopeless. Nor did he focus on Sarah's decades of infertility. Instead, in Romans chapter 4, he said, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And it showed first in his speech. And uh, he took on the name God gave him, Abraham, meaning father of many nations. And second, he demonstrated his faith through his actions. God asked Abram to go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice uh, Isaac, and Abram had waited 25 years for this son of promise, and now God was asking Abram to put, uh, 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 put, put him to death and sacrifice him. Do you know what it says about Abram in that very next verse in Genesis? It says, early in the morning. There was no hesitation. There was no procrastination. There was no delayed obedience. There was none of that. It says, early the next morning, he cut wood, gathered it, put it on a donkey, and took Isaac and left. It's just remarkable. How could he be so quick to put to death what was so dear to him? And the answer is clear, uh, clearly found in his own words in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. It says, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And then he said this, we will worship, and then we will come back. <laughs> Did you get that? He's taken Isaac to do what? Sacrifice him. And then he says to the servant, and we will come back. Did you catch that in Genesis? It's amazing. If he put Isaac to death, how could they both be returning? Abram somehow believed that God would raise up Isaac. And commenting on this event, the, Hebrew writer, the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews eleven nineteen, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Ha ha. We see it in Genesis and it's corroborated in Hebrews chapter 11. That's incredible. Abram's words and actions were evidence of a deep belief that he had in what God said to him. Now, you don't start there. <laughs> you don't start by, by plunging a knife into your son or daughter. Amen? You might feel like it, but you don't. That's not where, right. I'm just I'm, Okay, I hope this doesn't go on the air. <laughs> I never thought of that, but we'll have to just bleep it out. 2 Thessalonians says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. 
God wants us to grow our faith. I mean, many years ago, uh, I was, uh, God spoke to me when I was 21, and I was sitting in a, in a row, just like you, in a, in a Baptist church, 350 in Calgary, where we were attending and, and living, and, uh, and uh, God began to ask me the question, what would you do if I gave you the choir? And I said, well, I don't have a choir, and I know nothing about leading a choir. And God said, yeah, I know, but what would you do? And that's all I could think about that day. And the next, the next evening, there was a call from the music committee, and I knew who was calling, and I knew why they were calling. And I said, oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I've never done this before. What if I fail? Well, that's failing in front of 350 people. Not much to lose, right? But God, well, then you obey. True? You obey that first step. Then some years later, he said to me, uh, and, and friend, he said, gather up your wares, for I'll fling the inhabitants out of the land. And then we moved to Woodstock, as you know the story. Now, there was a lot more on the line, right? We had no money, no nothing stuff, and we packed everything. We went into a, a city, uh, not knowing where we were going to stay. And, but now, we had learned to trust him for another step. Amen? Today, you know what's the kinds of things that God is asking us to do, and he's asking this whole church to do? We build a 50, we're building a 15-plus million dollar building. We're building the $2 million Four Winds housing, launching a church renewal movement for 1,000 churches. We've agreed to make a large church leader's manual to train 23 pastors, while other countries in Africa have already asked if we'd start coming, all at the same time, and while still taking care of this church. We don't start there, amen? amen. We start where, where God tells us. So, now I want to take you back. I think we've got just a couple minutes to do this. You don't need much faith. All you need is the faith of a mustard seed. That's it. That's all you need. Because a mustard seed has all the inherent qualities of the tree within it. It doesn't matter how big that seed is. doesn't matter how little that seed is. You take that little tiny mustard seed that you can hardly see and you stick it in the ground. And according to Matthew chapter 13, it turns into a large tree. Right? God goes and he sows his word in our hearts. But we have to take care of that. We have to nurture that faith seed. But you know what it says when he sows? It says, it says, number one, in Matthew 13, the devil sometimes comes and snatches it away because people don't understand it. And here's, here's what I'm, I'm talking about. People come to church year after year after year after year, and they hear words, and it's God's rhema words coming into their ears. And they're not quite sure what to do with it or whatever. And they walk out and the devil snatches it away. And you know what they did? Wasted their time. Wasted it. The devil snatches it away. Last night, a young man came up to me right after service and he said, I heard something about soul ties. Somebody talked to me about soul ties. You've been talking about soul ties. Yes. Well, I don't know anything about it, but I think I got a problem with it. And Chris was with me, uh, my son. And Chris said, um, I'll, I'll, you know what? If you, uh, if you want, I'll take, I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll set up with you and we'll do, we'll do a session together. Just like that. And I'll show you how to deal with it. And then, somebody else, and, and then you can help somebody else. But the devil snatches things away. We have to protect the seed of faith that God gives us through a rhema, through a word that he's speaking to us, and he's speaking to us this morning. What are you going to do with it? Some people just sit there and let it just kind of bounce off. That's what the devil wants. He wants to snatch it from you. He doesn't want you to access God's grace, and he doesn't want you to develop your faith. And guess what? Don't be surprised if you never see great miracles in and through your life. He snatches it. It's up to you to guard it. It's up to you to do something with it. I sometimes see people sitting there and they're writing feverishly. God bless you. And then God speaks to them in the middle of the message and they're writing. And then they go out and they do something with it, but they don't let the devil snatch it from them. 
They're careful with it. It's very important. If we're going to become great people doing great and mighty works. There's a second thing. Some, they go through suffering, so they fall away according to verse 21. God doesn't answer right away. And you say, why does it, like, why do you have to keep asking God? James 4, you know what it says? You don't have because you don't. Do you know what it says? But do you know what that verb is? It's in the present tense. And in the present tense, it means you don't have, you say, but I did ask. I asked God to save my son or daughter, or I asked him to heal this person, or I asked him to take care of my finances. I did ask him once, three, three years ago, I did. And he didn't answer. But that's not what that passage says. That passage says, you do not have because you do not keep asking. That's what it says. And that's exactly what it says in Matthew 7, where Jesus said the exact same thing. He said, ask and you will, seek and you will, knock and, yes. And it's in the present tense, and it means keep asking and you'll receive. Keep seeking and you'll find. Keep knocking and the door will be open. But too many of us, we give up immediately. There's obstacles, challenges, suffering, and so we just fall away. We get disillusioned with God and we fall away. We might come to church. We get disillusioned with him. You say, well, why does he work that way? Why doesn't he? Like, he knows my needs, but listen to this. In faith, God does not respond to your need. He responds to your faith. (sighs) And he wants you to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. You say, but why? If he knows already what I want, why doesn't he just do it? Here's two reasons. Number one, he wants you to understand He wants you to understand that you don't have much faith. If you give up right away, then you know you don't have much faith. You didn't really, you're you're just giving up. Number two, he wants to grow your persistence and suffering and knows either you, you turn to him and you press in harder or you walk away from him. He's willing to take the chance because he wants you to grow your muscles. Because if you're going to do great works against the enemy, guess what you're coming against? Lots of opposition, lots of obstacles. Amen? And if you haven't learned to be persistent with God in prayer, you'll never stay in the game when you're fighting the enemy. Amen? Lastly, so you've got to guard the seed. <laughs> you've got to guard the seed. It says in Romans chapter 5, 3, suffering develops perseverance. That's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. The first 12 of the 16 years that Fran and I have ministered here, we're in our 17th year now, but the first 12 years, (laughs) our finances absolutely collapsed, and that was God completely doing it. Her health went south, and we thought we were going to lose her, and we had... Two teens that were struggling all at the same time, and it went for a full 12 years. There were some days I'd come in the office and I could just barely get one foot in front of the other. And then God would remind me, you better get to message prep because you got a whole church that needs encouragement. I'd say, thank you, Lord. But it was exactly those kinds of things He wasn't doing it because he didn't love me and he didn't want to answer my prayers. He wanted to grow my faith and persistence, amen, so that I'd be stronger. You know what? Fran often says to me, I wouldn't wish it on anybody else, but I'm sure glad he gave it to us. Have you ever said that? I know you have, amen? Have you ever said that? I wouldn't wish it on anybody else, but I'm glad it happened to me. And then the third thing for Protecting the seed of faith, that little mustard seed that he throws in there. You've got to do something with it. You can't, is, you can't let it be choked out by the worries and the cares of this life and the wealth, the deceitfulness of wealth. So many people come to me and they say, I want to do all this that you're talking about. But I'm having time, getting time aside with God because my business is so busy. Or I would listen a lot. And they love Jesus. 
Well, there's your choice. Are you going to put him first, seek him first, or are you going to seek your business first? Huh? You've got to protect the seed and develop it. And then we will see great and mighty things here in our church and through our church. I really believe it. James 5 says, The earnest prayer of a righteous man, person has great power and produces wonderful results. Too many people believe that God is going to one day fall upon the church with great revival. I don't believe that for a minute. I think he's waiting for the church to arise and take her rightful place and access his grace, develop her faith, and go and destroy the works of the devil in their lives, in the life of the church, and then beyond. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, we got a problem. We have a problem. We have not accessed your grace. And right now, we want to confess that as sin. Church, do it right now. Don't let this just dribble off, this prayer drip off of you. God, I have not learned to access your grace the way I should have. And because of it, there are people around me that are suffering. Lord, forgive me for that. Forgive me. God, I'm telling you that with all my might, I'm going to learn everything. I'm going to get all the training. I'm going to get all the help so that I can do it for my marriage, for my kids, for my cell, for those around me at work. And I'm going to learn. I'm going to make myself available for you to do great works. And Lord, I also confess that I haven't been nurturing. I haven't protected the seed of faith, the ramas that you've thrown my way. I've treated them so inconsequentially. I've, as though they're nothing. And they could have produced great things through me. I confess that. And today, I'm saying, Lord, I'm going to protect what you sow in my life and I'm going to grow it and I'm going to develop it so that you can do great things through me. Oh God, do it through me. Do it through this church. And oh God, please, please awaken and do it through the Canadian church as well. In Jesus' name, amen.